I'm Elena Landsberg-Lewis, your host of Grandmothers on the Move, the podcast that kicks old stereotypes to the curb. Come meet these creative, outrageous, authentic, adventurous, irreverent, and powerful disruptors and influencers. Grandmothers, from the living room to the courtroom, making powerful contributions in every walk of life. We know them most intimately as loving caregivers, the older women in our lives with a thousand stories about their grandchildren and pictures in their purses. In this podcast, you'll come to know even more about our grandmothers. They are galvanized, determined, and are guaranteed to get you thinking. What drives them? What are they up to? What is the potential of grandmother power, and how is it changing the world? Grandmothers are on the move. You don't want to be left behind. Hi, it's Ilana, and today I'm speaking to Gillian Kelly from the UK, a psychotherapist and an anti-fracking activist. So Gillian Kelly, thank you for joining Grandmothers on the Move today. It's wonderful to have you with You're us. Um, so, to be here. So, well, I wanted to, I'm excited to speak to you because I heard about you from an article that you wrote that appeared in The Guardian in January of this year. There was a marvelous picture. It took me a moment to figure out what it was, but it's you with your arms through a hole in what seems to be almost like a box with a row of police behind you. It looks very imposing. And the title of your article is, I'm 73 and a grandmother. Fracking has turned me into an activist. And my eye was immediately drawn to it because of the conversations that I'm having with grandmothers around the world about what mm-hmm. they're doing. And perhaps we can start here. You say at one point in your article that you saw the picture of yourself in the paper and that you had to laugh to yourself because you had never been an activist or thought of yourself as an activist before. Um, how did you think of yourself, Jillian? What, uh, what would you have said uh, before your arrest? <laughs> well, I felt very passionately about what I see as the absolute wrecking of the planet. Mm-hmm. I felt very passionately about that for many decades, really, since maybe the 70s. I have seen the decline in insect life or bird life or right. seen the changes uh, because I live in the country. I think people who live in a built environment all the time don't always realize what's going on, but it's much clearer, I think, when you're in the country. And uh, and I felt very concerned about destructive, uh, about the fossil fuel industries, about what's happening to the planet. And for a long time, I felt concerned. I've but I felt fairly powerless. I've signed petitions so that I don't feel quite so powerless. On rare occasions, I've written a letter. I have been quite vocal uh, when I've been with like-minded friends saying, you know, isn't this dreadful, isn't this dreadful? And feeling agonizingly powerless to do anything about anything, really. And, and I, how did I think of myself? Well, I very much doubted the efficacy of, say, going on marches or doing anything active. But that may have been my rationale because, I don't know, maybe I felt, you know, I was too dignified for that or something. I've done, I've had sort of three main parts to my, to my working life. I, I was a secondary school teacher. I taught drama and English. I went to drama school. And then uh, by 
by a series of accidents, I uh, became the owner of a vegetarian restaurant. <laughs> uh, so I was a teacher for about 11 years, and then I had the restaurant for about 10 years. That was very, very hard work. Yes. And, and then I sold the business, and I used the proceeds to go and retrain as a psychotherapist. So I started practicing as a psychotherapist in 1990, and I also trained trainee psychotherapists for about 12 years and uh, I spent about four years going up and down from the north of England where I live down to London working half there and half here and I'm still practicing I'm still I've cut back a little and I'm working two days a week and some weekends a few weekends a handful of weekends in the year but I think you know somebody talked to me the other day for a little film and, and I found myself saying respectability and um, care for one's reputation creeps up um, without one noticing you know (laughs) and uh, I didn't have I I wouldn't have said I had any particular image of myself but somehow my image of myself certainly did not include taking direct action I, I saw people taking direct action when I first started going down to the fracking site standing on the side of the road with my placard and um, I, I just saw them as completely other beings almost right um, with something other people did I, I it was something I could never do but then I started to think about that and think about how deeply I cared about this issue and how dreadful I saw the consequences being especially for global warming, especially um, it was going to tie us, it will, if it goes ahead, I, I very much hope it doesn't. And I'm feeling a bit more confident now that it won't. But if it were to go ahead, it would tie us into another four decades of a new fossil fuel industry, which is incredibly damaging. And uh, and because of what's involved in the extraction of the fuel, so it's very, very bad for the climate. It's very bad for global warming. And, you know, on all sides now, I think we're becoming aware that we are actually wrecking the earth and making it uninhabitable, maybe making it impossible to feed ourselves. And so, you know, feeling so, so deeply about the issue and seeing the catastrophic effects of it. And then you put that against your life and think, well, you know, I'm 73. Of course, I want a lot more. But really, what speaks against me doing something more radical? I'm never going to interview for another job. (laughs) Try and get into the civil service, you know. (laughs) What what would it matter, really? And then my son who who is involved in a grassroots organization called Reclaim the Power and has done quite a lot of activism, he did one or two really, really um he took part in one or two really inspiring um actions. One here in an open cast, closing down an open cast coal mine in Wales for uh, several days and and another one, a huge one with thousands of people in Germany, also in an open cast coal mine. And he he was at that time about 48, 49. And <laughs> there was a moment when I thought, oh, he's too old for this. And then I thought, why is he too old? You know, who who's going to do it? Who's He doesn't have children. He doesn't have dependents. Who's going to do it if he doesn't do it? And then in a way, I suppose the same question came to me and I did feel inspired by him. So all that started working in my mind. And uh, and then and then he and Reclaim the Power 
were doing a month of intensive action at the fracking site. And there was this evening, I think I say it in the article, when we were all, we all, he has a twin brother too, and we were all in sympathy with this cause and very concerned. And someone said it might even have been me. It might have been my son. I can't remember. Wouldn't it be powerful if, if we took action as a family? three generations of us. And it sort of, the idea took hold and Sebastian booked us a slot <laughs> in the month and said, this is the day, it's ours. And and, and we took um, the idea of what we did with the boxes and so on from a, a Greenpeace action that had taken place about two months earlier. And we got the design <laughs> Somebody sent us a design and so we put these tubes in boxes and we took them to the site. But by that time, it was halfway through the month and there had been an action at least four days of every week. So the police presence was huge. There were just ranks of police and they were present at night as well. They didn't used to be, you know, people used to be able to, to lock on at night before the police really got there. But now they had 24-hour police, so it was quite quite a thing to uh, to do it. I, I didn't think we could do it. I, I just could, didn't expect to be able to do it, really. Sounds intimidating as your, as your first action. Oh, oh. <laughs> I mean, in the, in the days leading up to it, I literally would wake in the night with my heart almost beating out of my chest. I, I can just, imagine. I just uh, would wake up pounding. I mean, so full of adrenaline. Yes, I mean, it was, you know, I remember walking up there with my chain and my carabiner around my, hidden up my sleeve. (laughs) And and knowing, knowing that the trailer that was bringing the boxes was coming, you know, there was a contraflow on the day and um, we saw it waiting at the traffic lights, at the temporary traffic lights. And, you know, the suspense, the tension was just... And when it arrived uh, and we had practised getting the boxes off and we got it down to 12 seconds to get the three boxes off and our arms in. and But within two seconds, the police put on it, you know. Wow. But there were loads of other protesters uh, because there had been a women's walk, the first women's walk. It now happens every week and it's a sort of call for calm, really. And the first women's walk, and there were a lot of people supporting this first women's walk. So they were brilliant. They just got it. They didn't do anything violent. They just got in the way. It sounds like an extraordinary coming together of community. Um, and yeah. before, before we go too further, explain... Yeah. To us, for those who don't know, what the boxes are and what locking on is. Yes. Well, locking on is putting, you have um, a steel, usually a steel tube, very, very thick steel, at least one layer. It's several feet long and across the middle of it inside is a bar. And one person at either end of the tube can put their arms in and you have a chain around your wrist and a a carabiner, you know, a clip. And you put your arm in and you clip yourself with your chain bracelet onto the bar across the middle. And And someone else does it from the other end. And the steel tube is also often reinforced with all kinds of other very difficult to get through materials. 
tarmac or old carpet or then it takes the protector the protester removal team the police have protester removal teams it takes them a long time to cut you out so you can disrupt the activity of the company or you can certainly track publicity you can get attention do you do you get that the the locking on so so these steel tubes in our case there were boxes and within the box there was a box with a cradle and the cradle held the steel tubes the whole thing was very very heavy and non-wieldy but it meant that we didn't really have to lie as many people do they lie on the floor you know they lie full length on the floor with one arm right. uh, locked into the tube and often uh, people look after them and put sleeping bags or camping mats or something under them you know and pillows and but we had organized very low chairs little fold-up chairs and we each had a little fold-up chair it was quite civilized in that sense after the initial melee it was quite civilized <laughs> right but a very a very physical kind of protest it, it reminds me of the suffragettes who chain themselves to fences around parliament uh, it's a very physical way of engaging in your very first protest. And you talk about waking up with your heart pounding in the middle of the night. You know, you could have pulled out or you could have decided to join one of the women's walks and do something a little less visible, a little less physical, uh, a little less at the forefront, perhaps. Certainly not with yeah. the picture on the, in The Guardian. And what kept you steady? Why did you decide to over, uh, overcome the pounding of your heart? Well, I talked with my son one day. Um, he said, I don't know what we were saying, but he said, yeah, it's fine to get arrested. But, you know, it's better if it has some significance, if people notice. Otherwise, you know, it's just like drops into a black hole, really. And so when we thought of this thing of three generations, I knew it would attract attention. And yes, it yes, did. Yes. I, I mean, people were incredibly moved and uh, amazed uh, that we did it with three generations. And so that was the thing, really. I mean, when the boxes first came off, the melee was such that I could not get near my box. I really tried and um, I got thrown into the road by a policeman at one point. Two other protesters who were there put their arms in the holes that me and my partner should have had. I, and I was so utterly, utterly disappointed. I felt absolutely devastated. Somehow the whole thing had happened without me and I wouldn't have a part in it and it wouldn't be a three-generation lock-on. And I, I mean, I didn't really have time to think those thoughts, but I know I felt crushed. And then this uh, young woman, amazing young woman from Reclaim the Power, said, come on. And and she just somehow got me to my box and got me swapped in. And she did the same with much greater difficulty a few moments later with my partner. And then I just wanted to cry. I just wanted to cry with sheer relief that I was part of it and I'd done it. And it was still what it had been intended to be which was three generations. Because there is something extraordinarily powerful about that, representing the, the generations that have lived a long time and the generations of, of young people who are coming up. You brought your granddaughter with you, I understand. My granddaughter did it too, and she was only 19 then. 
and uh, actually she'd just been in Spain and got appendicitis and had just had an appendectomy three weeks earlier and I said to her look you know you could do something else you could still be part of it and anyway she didn't want to she wanted to lock on and in fact people interviewed her then at the time and and said aren't you concerned about your future about being arrested and she was amazing I mean she was so self-possessed and she just said well I'm much more concerned about fracking than I am about being arrested. (laughs) Good for her. And in your article, you identify yourself as a grandmother. And I wanted to ask you about that. Uh, Obviously, it ties into this idea of three generations. But why did you feel that it was meaningful and important to speak as a grandmother in the form of the protest intergenerationally and in the article that you wrote? Well, because I think that what's happening in the world and The fracking here is just a a slice of the seaside rock in a way. I think it's just a microcosm of what's happening everywhere. It's going to hugely affect the next generations. I have another grandson. Uh, He's only two and a half and uh, and another one on the way. And uh, I mean, he's an absolute joy, as all grandmothers say that. But when I'm with him, when I see his absolutely unfettered joy and his avidness to learn and his observation, and his lovingness. It's absolutely wonderful. And I have a huge cloud over my heart because I just don't know what his future is going to be. Right. I I see a very dystopian future for him unless things change. And I don't understand why things are not changing. I don't understand why the people in government all over the world are not seeing the things that I see are not taking any notice of the evidence, are not seeing that we are making the planet completely uninhabitable, are not seeing that there are going to be water wars, are not seeing that there are going to be millions of people displaced and are still looking at money and still looking at corporate interests. And it really is agonizing. It's agonizing. So, I mean, if you ask me, what fires my determination. It's that agony, really. It's how wonderful life is and how terrible it could be and how crazy that is. That makes sense. It makes complete sense. It makes complete sense. And I've heard this from other grandmothers in particular, that the shift to take on a small piece, your piece of being a guardian of the planet, ensuring Mm. that there'll be social justice and equality and that the world will be a more humane place, that there's a deep motivation and incentive that leads grandmothers to act because they're so intensely connected to what is to come through this relationship with their grandchildren and their experience of their grandchildren. I I think you put that just beautifully. You know, yes, it is. That's right. It's an intense connection with what is to come because you have this relationship with this little person who is going to live it. And it seems to be such a powerful connection. I've asked several grandmothers, and and I'm interested to hear what you'd say about the the difference between I'm not a grandmother, but I I have two young teenagers. And Mm. I see my mother's relationship with my children. And she and I had a, and still have a very deep relationship. And yet her relationship with my children, her grandchildren, 
feels different. It has a different quality to it. There's a kind of alchemy to it that, that is different from motherhood. Can you tell me what you think that is? It's very different. I think I have a very different relationship with my grandchildren. I think it, it's hard to put it without talking for an hour. And um, I, I think it's it is very, very different. And I see my grandchildren much more clearly than I saw my children. And I think the reasons for that are, are many. First of all, I think I was much, obviously, with your own children, you're younger. And I was still much more concerned with my own personal life and my own personal gratification. And also, I had twins. <laughs> right, that's busy. And so it was hugely hard work. And for some of that time, I was a single parent. Well, I'm a psychotherapist, so I think I didn't have, just because of my mother's history and my father's history, I wasn't very well resourced to be a parent. I think my heart was quite close. And so I've been on a long, long, long journey myself. So when my granddaughter was born, the one who's now 20, I could already then see her much more clearly. I could just see the her essence, the essence with which she came into the world. I was absolutely blown away by her. And I, I hear that from many other grandmothers too. And also they speak with the same deep feeling that you do of the ability to relate so differently to these mm. children. And also about a kind of liberation in their older years from partly the all of the work and the strife of yes. young motherhood. Yes. Uh, and, yes. And, 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 it's such and, a hard working time, yes. I, I, I'm there. I can empathize. Yes, um, absolutely. You know. It really is. And, and I take great comfort from talking to older women who are grandmothers who often say to me that there's something liberatory in, in growing older and letting go of some of the self-consciousness of youth, the worries of young motherhood, the challenges of fi figuring out who you are professionally and what you're going to do with the rest of your life. And then that seems yeah. to free them up. Does that speak to you around the activism? It does, that and making? I think it's circular. I mean, I think having more space, not being in the throes of bringing up children, uh, that is freeing in itself. But then what I found that when I took this step of taking direct action, of stepping over this line, of doing something so extraordinary, that also played into that same journey. I felt much freer and I cared much less about how people saw me, whether they agreed, whether it affected my reputation in some way. I didn't really mind. and. Um, my sense of being somebody is lessening all the time. Being somebody, <laughs> having right. some kind of self-image. And I, I think this action contributed to that. I feel proud of it in a way, but also it's like, oh, oh, the limitations that I unconsciously carried, they don't really exist. No, I can do anything. You stepped over the line and got arrested for it. Yes. yes. <laughs> and, and tell me about that. What, what happened and how did it feel and, and what resulted from that? Well, 
I found, strangely, one of the most difficult things, because I'm generally cooperative, and I also generally see the reason for certain rules and law and order. Um, <laughs> so to be locked into this tube and have the police saying, you know, I'm asking you now again, will you um, self-release? Otherwise, we'll arrest you and uh, and reading out a list of reasons why you should self-release. And that was quite difficult for me. <laughs> I don't, but some part of me doesn't like to be a nuisance. Right. You um, were a teacher. You were used to keeping order. Yes. Some part of me doesn't like to be difficult. <laughs> and I, I, you know, I don't like to admit that because some people would sort of, be very proud of the fact that they're feisty and they're defiant and I'm not really generally I always if if I can do something skillfully calmly nicely with a smile I'd rather do that you know (laughs) so so being a little bit stubborn and obdurate and sitting there and not being obliging was quite hard and then the policeman said I'm going to have to handcuff you um but my partner, his arresting officer, said he wouldn't handcuff him because he'd looked him up and he saw that he was a fairly respectable person. So I said to my arresting officer, well, I don't think you need to handcuff me because you didn't handcuff him. And um, anyway, he didn't in the end. So, But it was very surreal going to the police station in one of these special vans, you know, that they put arrestees in. I had to wait a long, long time outside the custody suite because they were very busy that day and I had to stand for about an hour and then I went in and I it I was dreading was being in a cell because I'm a little bit claustrophobic. So I said, how long will I be in there? And he said, oh, only a few hours. I said, a few hours <laughs> with horror. <laughs> so actually... They let me out after an hour and a half, and there was a whole welcoming party outside, which was just wonderful. And we went home, and then we watched all the coverage. and um, And you asked me about what happened. We didn't. Mm-hmm. We entered a plea of not guilty, and then we had our trial in January, two three days after the article. The judge was very impressed by our good character references and said that we were clearly people of integrity and strong moral compass. And I felt we really acquitted ourselves very well. And um, we were found guilty, which we pretty much expected of obstruction of the highway. But we were given really minimal penalties. We had to pay some costs between us. Uh, She let my granddaughter off the cost. And we were given a six-month conditional discharge, which is about the shortest time you can get. So in many ways, it was it was really a victory. Yes. Yes, I think it was. And you still continue to take action. You're still visiting the site and sitting in the road and writing letters and, and giving talks. And it clearly, the fear of being in the cell uh, did not deter you from continuing. continuing no, practice. no. I mean, now that, now that I've done that, um, I'd be even more prepared this time, really. I mean, I think it's not too likely I do it again. But, um, but I'd never say never. Right. Um, there's going to be a period of intensified action. For three months because they are about to frack now and you know I will be there I will help whatever is necessary because uh, 
Yeah, I, I just, I mean, the, the, the fact that they are planning to fret is just appalling. There doesn't seem to be a recognition of the work and the power of grandmothers when they put their minds to something. And what would you say, Gillian, if, if our communities and societies listened to grandmothers, what difference do you think that would make? <laughs> well, in general, I think it would be an injection of common sense. I think it must uh, affect, you know, the total consciousness, if you like. I think we are, I suppose, fairly clear thinking and fairly well grounded. Both those qualities would be really valuable. We need common sense. We need people to be grounded. We need them to look outward as well as inward. I think the more grandmothers are concerned, uh, articulate, sensible, (laughs) wise grandmothers with some knowledge of the world are active in society, I I think they bring all those qualities with them. I do too. And, uh, And you certainly have been a role model in exactly that. And I thank you for your activism and for your commitment and for speaking to me today, Gillian. It was a real pleasure and very inspiring. Thank you. It's been lovely. And thank you for your very opening uh, questions. They've been splendid. Thanks for listening. I'm Ilana Landsberg-Lewis, your host of Grandmothers on the Move. If you want to find out more about me or the podcast, go to grandmothersonthemove.com and come back next week for another episode.